everybody. I hope you're all having a wonderful week. Anne Louise Gittleman here for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. And today I have a very special guest who is actually my gluten guru. His name is Dr. Peter Osborne, and he is the author of an internationally best-selling book, No Grain, No Pain. And I'd like to ask him everything you need to know and I need to know about gluten. So welcome to First Lady, Dr. Peter Osborne. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. The honor is mine. You're a true health warrior. So how did you become involved with gluten in the first place? Because I know you're a chiropractor with an immense background in nutrition. It's interesting story. I, I actually, as a chiropractor, had the, the fortune of training in rheumatology in the VA hospital. So um, not very many of us got to do that, but I was able to rotate through that hospital. And what I saw there was really, in my opinion, a travesty. These patients would come in with very painful autoimmune conditions and they would basically be pumped full of steroids and methotrexate, which is a very potent anti-cancer drug that is used to help with pain remediation. And what ended up happening to most of these people is the drugs destroyed their health, just slowly poisoned them over time and they still ended up having their joints destroyed and needed joint replacement surgeries. And when I brought the concept in to my attending physician there about these are autoimmune diseases and gluten is the number one scientifically valid, verifiable, everyone can agree upon cause of autoimmunity. And we had a model called celiac disease and this was 20 years ago. Um, I said, why don't we take a, why don't we take some people out and just let's take them on a gluten-free diet. Let's manage it. And let's just see what happens. And I was kind of laughed at and told that nutrition wasn't important and, um, and dismissed. And then I went back and, and I showed them literature on gluten sensitivity actually triggering rheumatoid arthritis and people with rheumatoid arthritis going into remission who, who were going on gluten-free diets and they still ignored me. And so then I went back again with more research showing them how fasting for 48 hours could dramatically improve the pain on, on, in patients with rheumatological arthritis and they continued to ignore me. And I went back one more time, Anne Louise, I went back and said, um, what about fish oil? Because you're already prescribing fish oil. And, and here's research that shows that fish oil is actually just as potent of a pain modifier as non anti-inflammatories. Let's, mm. let's at least do something that doesn't hurt the people. Mm. And again, they told me no. And that was it for me. My first um, experience in private practice, as I left the VA hospital, there was a little girl who um, was brought to me. She was nine years old. Her name was Ginger. She was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis when she was two. Now she was so bad off that her knees would swell to the point where she couldn't walk, she couldn't crawl when she was supposed to learn how to crawl. She had a port embedded in her arm because she was in and out of the hospital so frequently for, for pain medicines oh. to control her flares. And her doctor looked at her mom, you know, after seven years of poisoning her with methotrexate, she looks at her mom and says, you need to go home and get ready for your daughter's funeral. Oh. She's got about six months to live. Oh, how awful. It was terrible. It was terrible. And, you know, here I, I'm the, I'm a, I'm a green new doctor. This, you know, again, one of my first patients in private practice. And, you know, all the work that came before this, all the research that I'd done in the VA hospital, it kind of was laying on my plate, right? And so here I had this opportunity to investigate this, this potential. 
And so what we found with this little girl, Ginger, is she was gluten sensitive and, and we took her gluten free. After testing her, we found she had a gluten issue. We took her gluten free in six months. We got the port out of her arm. Um, and in a year, she was in complete remission. And this was a little girl that should have been dead. She's gone on today. She's already graduated from college and she's out there doing great things in the world. And, and that was how I got started on gluten sensitivity. It was just the blessing that I had as, as a chiropractor, being able to learn from rheumatologists and more than anything, learn what they wouldn't do um, in order to get people better. And that prompted me to be a more educated and better doctor. So from your experience, would you say that any, any degree of gluten intolerance may be related to the autoimmune epidemic we're now seeing today? There's no doubt about it. I mean, we, we know that factually, we know that gluten can cause intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And I'm sure your audience has heard of that. I, mean, I know you talk about it, but leaky gut is a precursor requirement for the development of autoimmune disease. And we know that gluten can cause it. So, so there's definitely correlation between gluten reactivity or gluten sensitivity and all forms of autoimmune disease. And I, I've seen that play out in practice over a number of years. I've seen so many people with debilitating autoimmune problems go into complete remission through diet change. We don't, you know, I don't treat people with drugs. I don't treat people with surgery. I, I simply change their diets, support their nutrition and let their body do the rest. So my question to you is, I think all of my audience will want to know, we're in the midst of this gluten sensitivity uh, epidemic. How did it begin? Is it because of the spray that we're using on the gluten? Is it because of the Roundup? Is it glyphosate? Is it gluten? Or has this always been there, but we've just never uncovered it? That's a really good question. You know, the earliest known writings medically for gluten sensitivity is 2000 BC. My so this gosh. Is, this is not new. Um, the celiac affliction is, is, is as old as, as written history, or almost. And um, so we know that, that it's not glyphosate per se. Now, does that mean that glyphosate's not playing a role in this? No, glyphosate's definitely playing a role. Here, here's what else we know. So, so cereal, if we look at cereal, 1900, really about 1895, cereal was, I call it invented, right? It was, it was Dr. Kellogg and C, or, or CJ Post or CW Post, I don't remember his other initial, um, but Post and Kellogg, right? Those were the, po Post created, right? Kellogg created cornflakes. And uh, actually Kellogg was a, was a GI doc and he would use cornflakes to irritate the bowel of his patients because they were constipated. So the corn <laughs> actually was an irritant that caused lubrication and, and caused a bowel movement to happen, but it, it took off. His brother was a brilliant marketer. It took off as a health food. And so in 1943, as cereal became this kind of staple in the United States, 8,000 people a year were dying by eating cereal. Like this, mm -hmm. there were two diseases, beriberi and pellagra, which are vitamin B1 and vitamin B3 deficiencies. They were, they were killing about 8,000 people a year. It's very well documented. And, and so what happened in 1943 is the U.S. government stepped in and said, you can no longer sell this, this processed grain unless you add vitamins to it. And so B1 and B3 were two of the vitamins that had to be added because of the deaths. A lot of people don't realize that. The cereal marketers were brilliant. Instead of saying, don't eat our cereal, it kills you. What they said is, eat more of our cereal because now it's fortified and it's even better for you. 
Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's a play on words, if you will. Yes, indeed. And, and, and so from that moment, from about 1943, fast forward to today, we know that, that grain comprises more than 50% in the United States, more than 50% of the daily caloric intake of calories. Now, that, and then still, still, still today, even with popularity of keto, even with popularity of the gluten-free diet, grain is still, it, it comprises more than 50% of people's calories on a daily basis. Now, now that being said, we didn't have that prior 1950. We didn't have grain in that type of mass consumption. So, so there's, think of it as kind of like this perfect storm. We've got gluten sensitivity, celiac disease has always been around, but grain has become more and more of a staple. And so more grain is eaten today than has ever been eaten in human history as a primary staple. So we're seeing more of it in people because there's more of it being consumed. Now add this to the fact that we're also adding vital wheat gluten because it's a, it's a, um, it's a chewy protein, right? And so what happens is if you put more gluten into bread, it's chewier. That's how you get the Subway sandwich that's super chewy. That's how you get the, the nice pizza crust, right? That's super chewy. And you're actually seeing manufacturers add gluten to already gluten heavy grain. And so there's even more gluten in the diet. Combine that with the, the quantity of total calories coming from grain. Now you've got an abundance of gluten in individuals. And so we're recognizing it more because people are getting greater degrees of exposure. Now, when you, when you add glyphosate to this picture, you know, glyphosate is fairly new. You know, it was, it was really probably in the, in the 80s where glyphosate really started to be used on a regular basis and more in the 90s when it was started to be used very heavily on, on most crops. What they do is they spray the field with these GMO Roundup Ready crops and then they come back after, uh, after they've already sprayed and they spray again before harvest. And, and the reason why is that if you use the Roundup before you harvest the grain, it, it desiccates, it dries the grain so it makes it easier to harvest. So the, the, basically the grain's been double sprayed with poison and, and you take that into the, and add that into the factoring. And now you've got an even bigger mess. You've got an even more confusing problem because some people truly are gluten sensitive. It's estimated that, uh, well, most researchers believe that 1% of the population has celiac disease and that six to 7% of the population has non-celiac gluten sensitivity. They don't develop celiac, but they have other health manifestations of gluten exposure. And then some researchers believe as many as 30% are gluten sensitive. I, I, I tend to fall in that higher camp just because my experience is biased, but, but I'll admit that. But at the very least, even if we go conservative, 6% of the population is gluten sensitive. And if we look at the rise of autoimmune disease, the 46 million cases in the US alone, up and some estimate as high as 50 million, um, and we know that gluten, in science, gluten is the one thing that we can all agree on that absolutely can cause autoimmune disease. So, so I say it's a huge impact. Um, glyphosate's part of it, but gluten sensitivity is a very real entity even without the glyphosate. So we primarily find gluten in wheat, but uh, tell me about the other grains. Are they better tolerated? Depends on the person, but not really. Um, wheat, barley, rye, are the classic grains that, that are referred to as gluten-containing grains. Now, now, without getting into a very boring uh, <laughs> biological synopsis, I'm, I'm gonna summarize it very simply. Gluten is not one thing. 
Gluten is a family of protein found in the seeds of grass. The seeds of grass are grains. So that would include wheat, barley, rye, oats, corn, rice, sorghum, millet, taff, triticale, or any other grain. And, and so there's a different kind of gluten found in all the different grains, meaning that, that gliadin, which is the type of gluten found predominantly in wheat, is the one everyone's talking about as, as it relates to celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. But there are about a thousand different forms of gluten found in all the grains, and many people react to some of these other forms of gluten even worse than they do to the wheat gluten gliadin. As a matter of fact, a study done in, I think it was 2010, found 400 new gluten proteins, 40 of which were more toxic to celiac patients than the gliadin that everyone is talking about. So, so in a nutshell, think of gluten as a family of proteins. They're all very, very similar. And people that react to them tend to react to them all as a family and not just reacting to one or two or a select few. So then my next question to you is this. If people start removing gluten-containing grains from the diet, what are the best, I'd say, bioavailable, the best tolerated alternative grains? I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking of the sorghum that you, that you mentioned just now. I'm thinking of quinoa, which I know there are problems with. And I'm also thinking of basmati rice, millet, and even this einkorn, which I just enjoyed last night. Are those viable alternatives, do you think? You know, that really is the biggest question. I, I, in my practice, I recommend people steer clear of those. But also in my practice, the people that are coming to see me are very sick. And so what I don't want to see happen is somebody coming in, they're very sick, and we're saying, yeah, go ahead and eat that einkorn. Actually, einkorn does have gluten in it, by the way. Um, I know that, that a lot's being touted now as a safe alternative in the gluten-free communities and so is sourdough bread they're, they're saying that if you if you you know if you if you turn the bread sour with with bacteria you actually de deplete its gluten content but it's still remember gluten exposure can damage a person as low as 20 parts per million so that's that's the size of a breadcrumb so it doesn't take a whole lot to create an inflammatory response in somebody who's sensitive to it so as far as the safe grains, I, I generally have people, that's why I wrote No Grain, No Pain. It, it's, what, the, the book is not No Gluten, No Pain. It's No Grain, No Pain. I, I recommend people go grain-free, and that includes the rice. Uh, now, if you want substitutes, I recommend root vegetable substitutes, things like tapioca or yucca root, cassava root. Um, those are all starchy carbohydrates that can be decent sub substitutes in the diet. Um, black rice. But, but specifically wild rice, um, because it's technically not a grain, it's actually a marsh grass. Yes. And what about tiger nut flour, my very favorite? Yep, tiger nut flour, tiger nut's a tuber and it's, it's perfect. Um, almond flour is a substitute. Many people use coconut flour is another one. Hazelnut flour, green banana flour. So, I mean, there really are a lot of options in today's world to, 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 to mix and match flours in such a way that you can still get a nice consistency to, to make a loaf of bread or to make um, or to make some pasta or whatever it is that you're trying to emulate, you know, from the grain family. So I guess my question to you is, you know, I have a partner, a husband who got well on a macrobiotic diet, four stage melanoma, and he cured himself. The macrobiotic diet is a heavily grain based diet. How would you 
how would you consolidate the fact that he got well on a grain-based diet with the fact that grain can be very autoimmune producing, very uh, inflammatory triggering? That's a great question. I mean, the, the, the biggest question that glares out of that for me is, is he actually gluten sensitive, right? Because he, he, you know, if he's not gluten sensitive and, and going on a macrobiotic diet, you know, there are nutrient properties to grains. It's not just all anti-nutritive. And, uh, and so it's very possible that he, if he's not gluten sensitive. That and I believe he is gluten sensitive. We've done bowel tests and so forth. GI panels would show that he's very gluten sensitive. I just find that a kind of an anomaly. And I, I, I totally believe everything you're saying, but, I, but he did very well on unprocessed brown rice and he still craves it to this day. Well, I would also say this, I mean, to beat cancer, you've got to get the processed food out of your diet and a macrobiotic diet is not a, is not a jaunt down the gluten-free grocery aisle where you're pumping all the processed chemically loaded foods with hydrogenated fats and sugars and other junk in them. And so, but whereas a macrobiotic diet is a whole food diet. So, so, you know, there's a, there's a saying in our industry, if you want to keep it at, at its simplest level, just eat real food. Like if you want to preserve your health to the best degree, if you have no scientific knowledge or testing to help you understand which foods might be problematic for you, just eat real food as your premise first. So is gluten-free food always healthy? This is a, not a trick question. I know what the answer is going to be, but tell me how people make mistakes with gluten-free food. There's a lot of gluten-free food on the market these days, which is anything but healthy. Yeah, I think, I, I think anytime you pick up a box, a wrapper, or a package, and it says gluten-free, gluten-free has become kind of the new fat-free. You remember fat-free diets, low-fat, no-fat. Oh, I wrote about it 50 years yeah. ago, it seems, yes. Yeah, it, and that's what gluten-free is today. So the, the, the connotation or the phrase gluten-free just in a person's mind has taken on a, a, a new meaning of this is better for me. But that's, that's marketers. They've done a really good job of, of making people believe that if it says gluten-free, it's somehow healthier. I, I, I would say that read every label when you're buying products. Read every label because a gluten-free product can be very unhealthy. I mean, some, a lot of the gluten-free products, you look at ingredient number one or ingredient number two, and it's like maltodextrin, which is just another way of saying sugar. That's not good for you. It may be gluten-free, but it isn't good for you. And so there's a very big difference between something being gluten-free and something being good for you. And I think, you know, learning how to read a food label and identify what's on the package so that you can make an intelligent decision about health, not just it being gluten-free, but it also being healthy. And, and so that, that's number one. How, how would you test for true gluten sensitivity? What is your gold standard? Genetic testing. Genetic testing, because the, the gold standard in medicine for testing for gluten is not testing for gluten. It's testing for celiac disease. Now, there are a lot smarter doctors than myself, Dr. Rodney Ford, Dr. Marsh. Um, Dr. Marsh created the biopsy classification for celiac disease. And he coined the phrase um, years ago, before I even started practice, the phrase is non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And what, that, what he was referring to is he, he recognized that there were a large percentage of people that reacted to gluten but never developed celiac disease. And so he coined that term because he wanted to educate doctors about that potential possibility so that they didn't test somebody for a biopsy and, and say, oh, you don't have celiac disease and then tell them to eat gluten. Tell them to eat gluten. Um, 
So, so the biopsy is, is limited. It, it, you know, remember the small intestine's 22 foot and the surface area is the size of a tennis court. <laughs> if, if you take a microscopic section of a tennis court and then say, oh, the entire tennis court looks just like this, you could be wrong. Like the other side of the tennis court might be broken, right? The, the, the paint might be washed away. It's the same thing in the gut. If you take a section of the gut and don't find damage there, it doesn't mean there's not damage in a different part of the gut. And that's, that's the problem with the biopsy is that most doctors, most GI doctors don't know that for celiac disease, you're actually supposed to take four to eight samples and most, most only take two to three samples on a biopsy. So they don't get enough sampling. Sometimes they don't even sample the right areas, the most common areas where they find the damage that, that celiac causes. And so they're looking in the wrong place. And sometimes the damage is just not severe enough for it to, to show up on a biopsy. And sometimes the person never develops villus atrophy. Sometimes instead of developing villus atrophy, they develop nerve damage or they develop thyroid damage or muscle damage or joint damage. And, and so remember gluten, it causes inflammation to tissue and, and, and it can cause inflammation to any tissue. And the way some people react to gluten is different than the way other people react to gluten, just like drugs. If you give 10,000 people aspirin, you're not going to get identical reactivity from all those people. They're all going to respond to it in their own unique way. And gluten is much in, this, in the same. So if you really want to understand how to look for gluten sensitivity, don't look for it in a biopsy unless you want to potentially get a false negative test result. There are blood tests as well that can be done. And the problem with the blood tests is they only measure one type of gluten. As I was mentioning earlier, there's about a thousand forms of gluten. The blood tests for gluten measure one type of gluten only. What about the other 999? There's also six different ways the immune system can react. And most doctors only measure one or two of those possible pathways as it relates to only one type of gluten. So there's a lot of room for false negative error in blood testing. So, so genetic testing shows us whether or not you have the propensity, the genetic predisposition to react to gluten. There's, a, there's an antenna that sits on the surface of our white blood cells. It's called the human leukocyte antigen antenna or the HLA DQ antenna for short. And, and this antenna has a single job to do. And that job is, is it helps the body identify bad guys and helps recognize good guys. And that helps the immune system recognize what not to attack. And so there are certain patterns on this gene. So this gene that I recommend people get tested codes for that antenna. So if you have a certain pattern on that gene, then what happens is you're more likely to react to that gluten structure than not. And so eating gluten activates your gene to produce an inflammatory response that over time can build and build and build and eventually make you sick. So, so genetic testing is what I would really recommend if somebody wants to truly know whether or not they're gluten sensitive. Now, some people will go on, a, on like an elimination diet and just take all grain or glutens out of their diet. And, and, and that's okay too, you can certainly do that. But understand there's a 12 week learning curve to going gluten-free and you could be going, thinking you're gluten-free, but not really be gluten-free, making all kinds of mistakes, not feeling better. You get, you get six weeks in and you're like, I'm not feeling better and then quit, but quit prematurely. And so that's what I see with a lot of people when they come to see me is they've done that on an elimination diet and they didn't see the results or the outcomes because they didn't dedicate the right enough amount of time or education resources to understanding what the gluten-free diet really was all about.
So when you talk about genetic testing, have you found that there are certain blood types that are more susceptible or predisposed? I haven't. I mean, I do test blood type in everyone who walks in the door. And I would say with gluten, gluten is an equal opportunity destroyer. Fender and destroyer, yes. Yeah, no, no matter what blood type you are, whether it's ABO or, or, or AB, um, I've seen it equally affect all blood types. Interesting. When we hear the term hybridized, would you explain that to my listening audience? What does that mean if a grain is hybridized? That means that, that farmers have taken certain qualities about certain grain seeds that they like. So for example, these seeds were really shorter grains. They, were, they didn't grow quite as tall. And so we took those seeds and we mixed them with these other seeds that were more pest resistant, right? So we took the qualities of each. It's almost like hybridization is almost like taking two animals that have qualities that you want and, and letting them mate so that you can get an animal that has both qualities. And that's a lot like hybridization and that we're taking different qualities of plants and we're trying to, to pull out the ultimate quality that we're looking for. And when you do this, you know, one of the things that, that, that farmers have done with, with grains is they've, they've hybridized them to contain greater quantities of gluten. So they're chewier, they're doughier, um, and they're more palatable, but they also, they, they, they grow them, uh, and this is not my work, but this is do actually Dr. William Davis who wrote Wheat Belly. Um, mm. he's, he's a friend of mine and he talks about a, a sugar in grain because of hybridization called amylopectin. So like these dwarf wheat varieties that have been hybridized contain a lot more of the sugar amylopectin, which in his practice, because he's a cardiologist, he was finding was contributing to obesity, weight gain, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, uh, and blood sugar abnormalities. And it, and it was because the sugar content, not so much gluten content, but the sugar content of the grain was a lot more prolific. So when you hybridize plants, you're basically, you're mixing and matching different characteristics and traits to bring about new characteristics and traits to, to yield more, to make them more resistant to, to drought or bugs or pests uh, so that you can grow more or have a greater yield on your acre. Um, without having to have an extra acre, meaning it's just a way to enhance farming so that they can yield more produce at the end of the day. And unfortunately, that's led to some health consequences. You know, as a university trained at Columbia nutritionist, we were always taught that whole grains were a great source of fiber. So what would you say to people that say, where's the fiber in a gluten-free diet? There's plenty of fiber in vegetables. Um, you know, Fiber, I think we're learning is overrated. I think, I think, don't get me wrong, I think fiber is important too. And, and you mentioned the word whole grain. And there's a big difference between whole grain and processed grain. Um, processed grain doesn't have, you know, much healthy fiber in it at all. Whole grain is another matter. But if you're gluten sensitive, eating whole grain is going to make you sick. You're going to be sick with plenty of fiber. Um, and, that, and that's, again, that's why I recommend people get tested because I, I certainly don't believe everybody in the world is gluten sensitive. Um, you know, I, I, I just, I can't believe that, that that's the case because that, you know, that would be, I don't know, a statistical anomaly or impossibility, really speaking. Um, and everybody's different and unique. And I think some people have evolved and their guts have evolved to be able to process and digest some of these things. And I think, I think others have not, but whole grain does contain fiber. Fiber can be healthy for you but you can get plenty of, of fiber from legumes. You can get plenty of fiber from plant-based sources as well that are non-grain. 
uh, and seeds and nuts as well do contain fiber. So, you know, but if you're buying a bunch of processed food off the gluten-free food aisle and thinking that that's going to supplant the missing fiber in your diet, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Sadly mistaken. So you have actually established a, a gluten-free society. Tell us what that's all about. Yeah, gluten-free society is, I formed it, I formed it in honor of Ginger, the, the little girl I told you about earlier. Oh, she, yes. You know, we saved her life. And to me, the greatest impact on my career was when we turned her life around, especially being a young and, you know, I, I say green behind the ears and maybe even a little bit naive in my, you know, as, as young people tend to be naive, but, but hopeful and full of robust hope and, and seeing her life change and, and, and seeing her life be saved. Here's why I created Gluten-Free Society. There's 46 million people with autoimmune disease in the U.S. alone. And most of them, when they go to the doctor to get treated, they end up with cancer because of their treatment. Meaning that when you treat autoimmune disease in a clinical setting, the, the bulk of who, what people get as drugs are um, anti-immune drugs, immune suppressants, biologics, methotrexate, uh, steroids, or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, these drugs, many of them contribute to a weakening of the immune system that allow for the progression of cancer. And so the end stage of autoimmune disease for many people that have had their autoimmune disease treated in, in mainstream medicine is cancer. And so they go through their life with a poor quality of life, 30, 40, 50 years of autoimmunity. And then all of a sudden now they have cancer and now they're getting chemo and radiation. And, you know, like Ginger, she was given a six month sentence. And I knew that if we didn't get this information out into the hands of more people, then we were just going to be letting people die. And as a, as a practicing clinician in my practice, you know, I only, you know, today, even today, I only see probably about 300 people a year. And that's just because you can't deliver great care with high volume. Like it's just not possible. You have to very, be able to- Very, very true, especially today. And there's no way I can re reach anywhere near 46 million people you know, by seeing 300 people a year, I, I you know, it's, it's an impossibility, right? So I founded Gluten-Free Society in the hopes that, that having the information available for people to get educated would allow them to, to be, have informed consent decisions around how they wanted to view and, and, and deal with their autoimmune problems. And, and, and if gluten-free diet was one of the ways that they wanted to entertain, that we would have all the information and all the science and everything that would help them more intelligently make that decision and, and also have a conversation with a doctor who might be treating them to open the, open the dialogue about a gluten-free diet and how impactful it can be for autoimmunity. You know, I have to tell you a story. Many, many years ago, I was the director of nutrition at one of the premier high carbohydrate, high grain, low fat diet centers of the world. This was in the 1980s, the name of which I shall, I shall not mention. But as I was green behind the ears coming into play as the director of nutrition at this wonderful new facility, a gal walked into my office and she said to me, you know, Anne Louise, people may be saving their hearts, but they're dying of cancer. I want you to figure out why. And just what you're saying now is kind of shedding a light. People were not eating a lot of fats in those days. They were eating high carbohydrate diets and filling up on shredded wheat morning, noon, and night. So I used to see issues with their thyroid. I used to see their cholesterol going to 113. And I used to see people who were not, you know, succumbing to any kind of cardiovascular event, but were dying slowly but surely of cancer. So there's really something to be said about everything that you're saying. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I, and I think, as you mentioned with your husband, he's, he's an anomaly in my experience. And, and I would say there definitely are anomalies out there. You know, oh, he's, like, an, he's an anomaly, period. <laughs> he's very much. He's definitely an anomaly in, in, in a good way. And in only the best way. Yes, That's we love right. you, James Templeton. Okay, so the, you, you wrote a best-selling book. Is there another one in the future? No gray, no pain? Well, there probably are three or four more that, that are coming, but I, you know, it's a matter of practice, but, you know, balancing time between practice, family, and, and, uh, and, and educating people online. But we do have what's next coming in our, in our mix is I've, I've created something called the Glutenology Health Matrix, which is a, about a 12-hour video tutorial. And it's, it's a step-by-step, everything you ever wanted to know, needed to know about going gluten-free, about what gluten is, about the science, about the, um, about the, the, the technical, but not so technical that you can't understand it aspects of the gluten-free diet. So how to travel, how to deal with family, how to deal with the psychology of, of food depression and food loss, like all those parts that, that don't get taught when somebody goes to the hospital and gets a diagnosis of gluten uh, health-related issues and they're just looking for the help. And, and so we've created this program that allows people to get all of that help in one place and really, you know, just rocket propel their success on the gluten-free diet. So how can people access that, Dr. Peter Osborne? All you got to do is just come visit us at, at glutenfreesociety.org. If you, if there's a little at the top, there's just this, it says sign up for the world's number one newsletter on gluten sensitivity. You sign up for that and we'll send you access to the Glutenology Health Matrix. How wonderful. Any other parting words to our wonderful audience here? I think the most important thing is just understand that diet is is one of the most critical and important impact factors for your health. And if you've been told that diet has nothing to do with it, you know, I'm not giving you medical advice, but but run the other way and find a doctor who who appreciates diet. It would be would be what I would tell you to do. Diet is so critical, and don't get me wrong, there are other critical pieces to health too. But 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 make sure that you start with just real food. Start with that premise, and then beyond that, understand that anyone can react to any food um, based on their own unique chemistry, and that and that food can be the greatest source of joy and health, but it can also be the slowest form of poison that you put in your body. And knowing the difference between the two can sometimes save a life. Can be life and death. Wow. So thank you so very much for being my guest. I enjoyed meeting you several years ago at your wonderful facility. You're still doing those wonderful conferences. We are. We're still doing them and plan on continuing to roll forward. Lovely. So I want to thank you once again, Dr. Peter Osborne, my gluten guru, and all of my listening audience for listening once again and tuning into First Lady of Nutrition podcast. This is Ann Louise Gittleman also thanking my sponsor, Unikey Health at unikeyhealth.com for all of their outstanding products, their gluten-free vitamins, their supplements, and their self-health testing. So I want to wish everybody a magnificent week. Be well, stay well. Shalom, shalom. Shalom.